Albert Vetch was the first real writer I knew. Not because he was, for a while, able to sell his work to magazines, but because he was the first one to have the midnight disease, to have the rocking chair and the faithful bottle of bourbon and the staring eye. He set a kind of example that, as a writer, I've been living up to ever since. I only hope I haven't invented him. That was Michael Chabon. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Geffel M930 via the Avidus MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Monday afternoon in the moon cabin. So, what is this show? <laughs> well, in 2014, the actor Al Pacino was profiled by John Lahr in The New Yorker and asked to define his approach to acting. Pacino spoke four words that I have not been able to get out of my head since. Go with the glow. And I don't, of course, know exactly what Al Pacino meant by go with the glow. But the meaning that I take from it is that what he's doing, first and foremost, when he's acting, is following a feeling, a pull towards something intuitive that feels alive, like a flame, something that he is compelled towards, something innate about this character that feels really connected to something innate about him that he wants to express. And he actually, elsewhere in this profile, says that the pursuit of that glow is so important to him that there's this story that he was in a rehearsal once and a director was giving him notes on his performance and Pacino was counting numbers in his head to try to distract himself from what the director was saying so that he wouldn't hear it because he was worried it would interfere with his connection to this glow. So all artists obviously have a craft, whether it's acting or painting or poetry or pottery or filmmaking or dance. But the great artists, I think the great artists know that that craft is in service of something else. This pursuit of the glow. That the craft is the only known compass that can get you there. And that the work of art is to recognize that glow and then also to recognize the circumstances that are necessary to allow the glow to radiate out through the craft. And then, on top of that, to somehow develop a practice that creates those circumstances, whether it's sitting up all night with a bottle of whiskey 
or counting numbers in your head during a rehearsal. And I think the midnight disease is the ability to recognize the feeling and then to dedicate yourself to the constant pursuit of it. And this is going to be a show about how artists do that. On every episode, we're going to talk to a great artist about when they first felt the feeling, what it felt like, and how they find their way back to it through the work that they make. Now, why does this matter to me? I didn't grow up with religion, but I believe in the potential of art to transport me to a kind of fourth dimension, a realm beyond rational experience, a sensation that overtakes me and seems like it unites all the disparate threads of the third dimension, where I spend most of my time. For example, there is a note that Eva Cassidy hits in the last verse of her cover of Oh, Had I a Golden Thread?, And when she sings this note, I feel like she is rattling the retaining walls of human experience. She is breaking through to something else. When I look at Alex Katz's paintings, I feel like I can see his subjects breathing. When I watch Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, it always feels like his characters are somehow speaking my inner monologue, no matter what they're saying, even and maybe most of all when what they're saying is, why are there frogs falling from the sky? And this feeling matters to me because it's the closest I've ever come to a belief in something bigger than ourselves. And the reason I want to explore these feelings in a podcast is because I have been making podcasts for 15 years, and almost all of them that I have made have been long-form narrative nonfiction podcasts. Two that I'm particularly proud of are Family Ghosts and The Rumor, if you are interested. But as much as I love stories and storytelling, the sense of coming unstuck in time during the making of those shows. It didn't happen during the writing of the episodes. It didn't come in the research. It didn't come in the pulling of clips. It didn't come in the assembly and scoring of the audio. It came in the conversations that I had with my sources and my co-hosts. And the shows that make me feel that way as a podcast listener are conversational. So that's what this is going to be. And the goal of these conversations is not necessarily going to be to figure anything out, although we might along the way. The real goal is to bask in the glow of the benevolent curse, or, if you will, the midnight disease on WALT.
So for this first episode, I talked to one of my absolute favorite singer-songwriters, the great Jocelyn McKenzie. Now, you might know Jocelyn's work from a trio that she was in for a while called Pearl and the Beard. You might also know her from her solo work on the record Push, which came out in 2021 on Righteous Babe Records, which is the legendary record label of the also legendary Ani DeFranco. When Jocelyn and I talked, actually, uh, she had just come back from being on tour with Ani. And Jocelyn also is a psychic medium, which we will talk about in the interview. The thing that struck me the most about Jocelyn when I first saw her perform is the state that she enters. And I talk about this with her, too, but to try to give you some sort of a preview When you watch Jocelyn perform, the sense that I have is that it's almost like she herself is not there. Like, in the moment of performing this song, she has become a vessel for the song. And so I put a version of that to her in the conversation, and it turns out that she actually has a very specific answer about what's going on in her body and in her spirit that is giving me that impression. Jocelyn is also the author of probably the most haunting lyric of any song that I have ever heard. And you're going to hear her tell me the story of how that lyric came to be. going to start recording so that uh, I don't forget to turn it on when we formally begin talking, but just Great. so you know, the recorder is now on. Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, one of the things I wish a lot of people who did audio-based art, let's call mm-hmm. it, whether it's music or podcasting, would be more honest about is like, it is so fun to hear your voice. Oh, it's so fun. That's like part of why I make music. It's because I want to hear my own voice. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie about that. No, I, I'm true. glad. I'm glad you're not going to lie. I, yeah. Whenever I hear somebody say, "Oh, how could you listen to the sound of your own voice all day?" I I would be mortified. I'm like, I no. think you're lying. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you love it. One of my responses to that that I have to check in myself a lot is. Me think the lady doth protest too much. That comes up for me a lot. It's like when I'm super resistant to something, it's because I want it so bad. Usually. Mm. Usually. Mm. You know, either that or it's like a really hard no. And Uh, (laughs) it's like, no, under no circumstances. Um, But if I'm like, how could you? I'm justifying the reasons why I actually want to explore it. Yes. I I have the same experience. For me, it's often when someone is – when I see somebody else having – uh, seeming to sit in comfort in an impulse to celebrate themselves. <laughs> I'm like, you must be ashamed of yourself. Yes. 
And what I what that feeling actually is is I am ashamed of my own inability mm-hmm. to advocate on my own behalf. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hundred percent. I'm going to tape that to my wall. Why do we do it? Why? Why do we do it? We're, welcome to the human condition. Yes, uh, <laughs> Jocelyn McKenzie. This podcast is called The Midnight Disease, and before I give you my take on what that means. I'm curious what it conjures for you. What what comes to mind? Oh, my goodness. It is very evocative. I feel sweaty. <laughs> I <laughs> am awakened in kind of that panic attack feeling when you know you have a big thing coming up or a deadline or something, and you just can't sleep because you keep waking up thinking that you've already missed it. Mm. And maybe you're... Did you ever drink so much that you sweat it out of your pores? (laughs) That. Uh, Unfortunately, on more than one occasion. Yeah, same. And (laughs) it's it's bringing up that, like a detox feeling. That is (laughs) a fascinating answer. Yeah. Um, I think of the midnight disease as a generative state, Mm. Um, a kind of trance that I feel like I go into – when I am making my best work, um, and also, unfortunately, a state that I am dependent on and have no reliable way of conjuring. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. But to hear you say it, it almost sounds like for you it is more of a reaction to Mm. a previous state of creative generation? Sure. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. So what does your generative state look like when you're writing a song? Yeah. What time of day is it? Where are you in your space? Yeah. How does it work? That's a really good question. Well, for me, I'm I'm an early, early morning person. Mm. Morning. Early morning. Before anything else has happened. Before anyone can talk to me. Before... (laughs) You know, and so for a while, um, I was waking myself up at 4 a.m. to get into that exact state. And, you know, I have a dedicated morning routine that I do. I've been doing it for about, I want to say this morning routine I've probably been doing about seven years, maybe maybe six years. Wow. But I get up and I and I say this because I, I don't dive directly into that mm-hmm. state. I, I have to kind of do my morning routine. And so it involves journaling. Mm-hmm. Definitely involves coffee. The first thing is coffee. The second thing is journaling. And then um, reflection and, and meditation. So I meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. And that – what that does is it literally – you know, the journaling is, you know, morning pages. It just completely – it's just a dump. It's just a slate mm-hmm. clean, mm-hmm. dump the the brain mush mm-hmm. from the day before, get it all out. The meditating kind of cleanses the palate and the reflection is like, okay, what what is this day going to look like? How do I want to behave? What are my intentions for the day? And then once I've done that, then if I'm in that 4 a.m. state because I'm like delirious, I'm very tired. Sleep deprivation is a great tool, if you're looking for a tip of how to get into that state, you know, reliably, right. deprive yourself of sleep. It, yes. it is, you know, probably very unhealthy. But um, Starve your brain. <laughs> starve, yes, and do not get any rest at all. Um, but it works, and it, it, it is so rewarding because then, you know, by 7 a.m., 8 a.m., I've got 
hours of work under my belt and I'm just like, yes, and I'm so juiced. And then I go back to bed and I take a nap until nine or ten and then, you know, have this little moment of I had a whole day and now I get to like take a nap in the morning like a toddler (laughs) and get back to my like emails, you know. So this – thank you for sharing that. Um, I love – the specifics of it, it makes me think of um, one of the quotes that inspired this podcast is uh, from Toni Morrison. Mm. And she says, um, I'm going to mangle the details slightly, but she says that for her, she has to get up and make a cup of coffee that is the same color as the sky. Mm. And then she has to drink it before the light comes. Yeah. Um, so it's it, there's something about like beating the light yeah. that is important to her. Yeah, I love that. And it makes me think of that sleep-deprived state that you're purposely kind of entering. Mm-hmm. I think of that state as sort of like a smear, mm. like you're smearing between unconsciousness and consciousness. Yes. And what a rich space for interesting work yeah. to bloom. absolutely. I love that. And, you know, so... The 4 a.m. wake-up thing, I definitely do not do that every day. Um, That's kind of a special occasion thing when I, like, really need it. But it's how I can conjure that state at home. Mm. But truly, the the breakthrough into this sleep-deprived kind of smear state, um, a dear, dear friend of mine, Guy Capisolatro, who's an incredible musician and um, just a maker of all kinds of things, he invited me in – 2015, for the first time, I went uh, to a songwriting retreat on Star Island, New Hampshire. So really that – so, you know, and it's, you know, four days. Star Island is a place where you only can visit there if you're going there either on a day trip or with a conference. So it's a a communal hotel. And so everybody's kind of sharing meals, sharing bathrooms. And it's built in the 1800s. There's, like, nothing there. There's not a restaurant. You know, the dinner bell rings and they serve you whatever's for dinner that night. But the goal there for this retreat, the Writers in the Round songwriting retreat, is that artists come who – some of them, it's the only time of year that they ever write. Some of them have been writing for 30 years. Some of hmm. them have never written a song. There hmm. are poets. And it's just this spirit of there's just no ego. There's no ego. And it's challenged by choice. So there are classes that you can take or not take. There are, you know, round-robin shares that you can participate in or not. And one of the things that Guy would do is he would kind of take over. So there's all these little buildings all around the island. And one of them is like an art barn that I like to go into. And it's got like filled with art supplies. And at 2 in the morning, you can go in there and just make whatever you want. Um, oh my God, this is paradise. You got to come. It's really fantastic. And so Guy would take over this one building and just set up his recording equipment and just write songs and just stay up until, you know, the sun came up or whenever. And he would take these little tiny micro naps. And I just started doing that kind of, I would find my own corner, of course. But, you know, and it was it was like, you know, being in this chapel that was built in 1800s at three in the morning during like a windstorm on an island in the middle of Maine. You're just like, what is even happening? Like, yeah. And that surreal feeling and also this feeling of being able to kind of like channel the spirits of like all of these people and, yes. you know, historical figures who had passed through there. And and then also to just like pass out and know that breakfast will be ready at 8 when the breakfast bell rings uh-huh. and, you not you know, you don't have to think about 
meeting your own needs. It's just everything is provided for you. So that state of being able to hyper-focus mm-hmm. to try to recreate that at home is, like, challenging because, like, nothing can really, like, touch it mm-hmm. also in some ways because it's just such a specific, very special, yeah. wonderful community experience. And then, you know, so 4 a.m. is the best I can do yeah. in my house. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, y- you said 2015 was the first time you yeah. went. Um, and you said you've had your personal version of the ritual for about seven years. Yeah. So am I right? That 2015, seven years ago. Yeah, that's right. Am I right that this is the place you discovered this practice or discovered it and then began to adapt it for your own? Funny enough, it's actually not. They're they're totally unrelated. That's just a connection that's happening right now. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That's so funny. Yeah, I guess I they, – they were coming in a big – momentum change in my life a lot mm-hmm. shifted mm-hmm. in my in my world between 2014 and 2015 mm-hmm. um pillars pillars of my personal experience <laughs> just like i don't know if you're into the tarot but it was like a very like tower year for me I'm like into the tower. Er, yeah everything was just like nope you're starting over so it was a big start over year can we momentarily for any li- i suspect that most of the people listening to this will be familiar with the tower card oh sure but could we give a a quick physical description of it for yeah, those who aren't definitely well the tarot uh tower card um, is it, the traditional Rider Waite deck has an illustration of a kind of a medieval-looking tower with, you know, the kind of checkerboard-looking spires on mm-hmm. it, and it is in flames, and there are people falling off of it, and it's got a lightning bolt coming down, and it's gonna, it's crashing, and it's about to, you know, be destructive. So when it comes up in a tarot reading, people are often very afraid of it mm-hmm. because it's scary. It looks very terrifying and foreboding. Um, but really, for me, the the meaning goes a lot. It's a, it's more rich, and it talks about destructing old institutions and behaviors and yes. and things that no longer serve us so that mm-hmm. we can pave way for something new that needs to happen. So, yeah, 2015 was a big year for just, like, clearing the way for for new stuff for me. And it was it was really refreshing and and also, like, hard. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. not it's not an easy clearing. Um, are you comfortable talking at all about what was shifting for you in your life? Thanks for asking. Sure. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of stuff. Uh, well, the number one thing was I, I had to kind of look at my uh, relationship with substance abuse. Mm. And so that was the hugest thing for me in 2014. And and so See I— See earlier, sweating out boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, midnight disease. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was intense. And so, you know, to kind of stop— my behaviors and and learn to have new ones was a huge shift. That was a huge learning shift for me. And then in that process, kind of in that first year of looking at, you know, what it looks like to live without drugs and alcohol, um, which I couldn't imagine Mm -hmm. for most of my life. I could not imagine Mm -hmm. not having drugs and alcohol in my life. Um, Then it impacted in a way, I don't know if it was the catalyst or if just now that I had more clarity, su- suddenly things were becoming more clear to me that I had just swept under the rug for a long time. But I went through a, a pretty gnarly divorce at the time, mm-hmm. which was really challenging and, and painful for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I had some skirmishes with my family that were really challenging mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um 
uh, also my my band Pearl and the Beard stopped touring at that time for various reasons. And now, thankfully, we've um, you know we all just really wanted different things. But for yeah. me, like you know, now we're we're close and things are great and we're collaborating again in new ways, which is awesome. But um, you I'm know, seeing at the time, why the tower is a meaningful. Oh, yeah. illustration. these are yeah. base notes. <laughs> it was base notes. My marriage, my uh, career, and my family. And uh, my coping mechanisms completely mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. fell out from under me, literally in the sa- like in a six month period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just was literally. And you know what though, I have to say, at the time, I was on one hand, it was the scariest thing I've ever been through. It, truly, I mean, everything literally fell apart within six months. Like, mm-hmm. but at this, on the other hand, I have never felt more trust in the universe mm. and more free. Mm-hmm. And more grounded. And I think, and I said this at the time, if any one of those things had stopped or changed or shifted, I don't know if I would have had the audacity to actually make the changes that I really needed to make. You know, because it was everything all at once, I had no choice but to like literally just uproot my life. And I I was living upstate at the time and I moved back to Brooklyn with like literally, I think I had like $700 Wow. And I didn't have a place to live and I didn't have a job. Like I thankfully a friend of mine was subletting her place at the time. So she let me stay there. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. Like the timing was just so cosmic. Like everything was just like cosmic synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity, just like landing me in the right place in the right place in the right place. And so I just kept trusting that. I was like, I'm fine. I'm gonna be fine. This is actually what I need to be doing. And as scary as wow. it was, I had to let go of everything. So it took this, in retrospect, you're saying it seems like this convergence of disruptions Oh yeah. to um, make you uh, recognize the need to build a new foundation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and in that time, you know, one of the things that was kind of coming up for me was, you know, now it was like, okay, well, I still want to be making music, but what does mm-hmm. that look like now that I don't have a band? Mm-hmm. What does that look like now that I don't have money. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does that look like, you know, in certain ways? So in that first month of moving back to Brooklyn and having like, you know, very little money and, and, but meanwhile, a ton of support, Mm -hmm. I called in a bunch of favors and, and was able to work with some folks who helped me put together, um, my friend Guy was one of them, helped me put together my first solo EP, literally like in that, you know, I moved back to Brooklyn, I think in like July of 2015. Mm -hmm. And by like August, I had released my first EP because I was just like, I have to process this this way. Hmm. And one of the things that was interesting about it was this feeling of, I I wrote a song called Kids that came out on that first EP. It was called Unlovely. And um, in the time of, after my divorce and and this this very (laughs) dour (laughs) moment, um, I couldn't find a song that was, because I needed something upbeat to to pump up my vibration and give me like a little mm-hmm. juice in the morning to get me out of bed. But I couldn't find any breakup songs that were upbeat that did not say screw you to the other person. Y- you know what I'm saying? Oh. So like any upbeat breakup song that I could hear, they were like, oh, I didn't need you anyway and you right. know, get out of my life and who cares about you? But I was like, that's not how I feel. Like right. I I mean, I we got divorced for a reason, but like I didn't want to 
say that about my ex. Like, I didn't, right. that was not the energy that I needed. Like, I wanted my ex to be safe and happy and healthy and warm, but just like yeah. I knew that being with me was not the answer to that. So I was like, <laughs> how does that, how do you? So so this song Kids came out and it was really about like the complexity of like came really, out of you. It came out of me and like uh-huh. loving someone and and wanting what was best for them but also like not wanting to be with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And so to write music that I needed to hear mm-hmm. was truly like next level healing for me, you know. And was that a departure from the way that you had approached songwriting previously? Had mm-hmm. had the impulse to I feel like you're describing this. Um, oftentimes, I think this is going to sound like a digression, but it's going to come back. <laughs> oftentimes, I think when people hear about um, artists following an intuitive process, mm. I think some people hear that and think it's just like a fancy word for laziness or <laughs> um, kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Sure. But I think what it often means in concrete terms for many artists, not all, is a realization that I need to answer my own questions. Mm, yeah. And it is the organic pursuit of those answers, which may not look from the outside like any sort of rational process sure. um, that is going to lead me where I need to go. Yeah. Um, and I hear, that's what I hear you sort of describing when you say you wrote kids because you wanted to hear the kind of song that you were looking for to make you feel better. Yeah. Um, so uh, the question in that, I suppose, is when you wrote songs prior to that moment, were you also trying to write the sort of song that you wished someone else was kind of providing yeah. for your emotional moment? That's a really great question. You know, I don't know if I ever did kind of as purposefully as I did with kids before <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I love you talking about this idea of like, Intuitive, like intuitive writing is uh-huh. kind of a guise for for laziness or uh-huh. like you know phoning it in because I love that you said that I really don't think that that's acknowledged enough and yet like this idea that being technical and being very strict or editorial or you know like quantitative about our work to me is like to me and this is just me but like is the the antithesis of being an artist. Like, why does stuff have to make sense? Like, stuff does not have to make sense. If stuff needed to make sense, I would be an accountant. But art doesn't, at least to me, it just doesn't make sense. And, like, that's part of the beauty of why I want to communicate with it. Because to me, the work has a lot to say. Mm -hmm. I, I, and, and as someone who identifies as someone who channels and, you know, this is something that, like, I was experiencing my whole life um, of I would just be walking down the street, often very much doing, like, a right brain activity, mm-hmm. uh, like washing the dishes or taking a walk or in the shower. Yes. It makes space for me to hear music mm-hmm. that is, com- for me, coming from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Often, often, especially when I was in that headspace, if songs would come through – and then I would listen to them. Then later it would be my job to kind of like, okay, let me get this through my body. Let me get it out and I'll sing it. Mm-hmm. I'll write the words down that I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, often something would happen later that would be backed up by something that I had written. So an example is my song Better that is on my record Push. Um, that song was written in 2015, actually. That was a big summer for me. Oh, wow. And okay. I had had the chorus kind of rolling in my head for a long, better, 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 better. Like, that was rolling in my head for years. And I, you know, had um, 
you know, been connecting with a really close friend at the time and, and we were really helping each other get through. He was going through a breakup as well at mm-hmm, the time and, mm-hmm. and it was really hard and we were just really there for each other in this way that was like incredibly powerful and life-changing for both of us. And, you know, the verse came out uh, – the first lyric of the first verse is listen up the whole world's in a flux of a fever Mm. and sent to search and destroy by the ether and I'm like what is this and I just like kept writing it and I'm like okay well that's what I'm hearing in my brain let me just write it out and I didn't know what it meant and Mm -hmm. I was like somebody said this this wasn't me this is something else Hmm. and then fast forward a few years and we're in a global pandemic and that was when that song came out officially yeah you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the whole world in the flux of a fever. Mm-hmm. I could not have written that. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm not that talented. Like I don't know how to write lyrics like that um, that came from somewhere else. And just like to uh-huh. trust that laziness or like mm-hmm. allowing – I like to call it allowing – Yes, is is a, a receptive state that is highly, highly, highly necessary. Like right. look at a golden retriever right. sitting in a sunlight beam. Right. You know, they're just laying there and everyone's like, oh, I wish I could be like that golden retriever. I wish I could just lay in the sunlight and love my life and just be asleep and just have a great life and just love everything I see. And then when it comes to being an artist, they're like, well, you better work hard. You better not just lay in the sunlight and love everything you see. Yeah. I often think of it as a, a state of active surrender. Yes. I love that. Um, the other thing that you are talking about that I think is so important when it comes to this subject is the recognition that creation is not an orderly process, yeah. that it is not accounting. Yeah. It is a, a, a nonsensical practice that acknowledges the importance of nonsense. Yeah. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. So jumping back to something you were talking about before, um, prior to this 2015-2014 moment and discovering a way of writing the kinds of songs that you wanted to hear in your head Mm. and um, finding the Star Island community. If you're comfortable talking about it, how big a role did substances play in your generative practice? Yeah, that's a great question too because I think a lot of artists, and, and I was definitely afraid of what would happen to my artistry if I didn't have my best friend, Jim Beam sitting next to me. Uh, <laughs> Sir James. <laughs> yes, Mr. James. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, drinking was a lot more tied to um, performance rather than generative mm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that like right brain moment of just kind of like being in rhythm with something and then allowing a song to come through, that would often happen in a time or a space where like I hadn't quite gotten out the bottle yet. Although I was terrified to write my first song sober because I felt it coming. So it was this feeling of, you know, because I I can sometimes go for months and months and months and not write a song. Hmm. And then I'll write 10 in a weekend, you know, or or one will hit me out of nowhere on the subway, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, okay, great. So that when I feel it coming, it's always this like, ooh, it's like, it's almost like when you're about to go on a first date with someone, but you're pretty <laughs> sure you're going to like them. And you're just like, ooh, I, I think like maybe you met through a friend. So you have like a good authority that like mm-hmm. you'll get along and, you know, so you're like, oh, you're excited, but you don't know what's happening. And sometimes it just tanks, but 
a lot of times you're like, oh, yeah, I want to see this person again, right? So I was getting that feeling sober, and I was like, oh, my God. And I definitely wanted a drink. I was like, I should for sure have a drink right now. And so thankfully I, you know, called some friends, and, you know, they talked me off the ledge. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, and it, and it was one of the most honest songs I had ever written. It was so honest, like painfully honest to the point where, like, I played it for my ex at the time, and he was like, um, <laughs> was like, could you not play that song anymore kind of thing? Um, but it just was, I mean, it was terrifying. I want to make sure I understand this moment where you said, I'm feeling this song approaching me. Oh, yeah, me. I could feel it. It's coming through me. Yeah, I'm, I need to drink. I need to have a drink. Yeah. What was that moment? Why the drink? Was the yeah. drink going to help you? Hide from the song? Oh, good question. What was the drink going to do? Oh, man. The drink was going to be able to help me handle my feelings. Okay. I couldn't handle feeling any feelings. I still uh-huh. have a real hard time with it, which is mm-hmm. part of why I make music. Mm-hmm. It's because I can handle my f- complex feelings. That's mm-hmm. also part of why I make music and not necessarily. I do write poetry occasionally, uh-huh. but poetry is so raw mm-hmm. for me because if done well, it exposes the heart in this raw nerve way that I then walk away from as if somebody just like ripped the Band-Aid off, but it's actually just like a full body cast and then just like leaves you alone (laughs) in the desert and like, now you figure it out. I'm like, no, like I can't do it. But like melody for me provides a little bit of like a balm Mm. to that. You know, like you can put jazz hands on death and you can put like sparkles on, you know, heartbreak and remorse and regret Mm -hmm. and it it makes it feel a little bit. I feel like you're you're basically describing your oeuvre of song. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. I write about death, but also there's jazz hands. Yeah, Um, yeah, I write a lot about death. Um, But it's, you know, th- but that feeling, yeah, that that tinglingness of, I just can't. I don't trust myself to be able to handle this. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can really feel my feelings mm-hmm. at all properly. Mm-hmm. And to learn over time that I can have more than one feeling at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the two feeling state was something that in the past drink had helped with. Oh yeah, I mean, it just was like, okay, um, you're gonna be fine. You're yeah. gonna be fine. You yeah. know, it's like. That feeling of like, I don't know if you're into um, like roller coasters or like, you know, water rides or things like that, where it's like, you know that you're, you have to buckle up. And, and like on one hand, like intellectually, you know, you're safe, right? Mm-hmm. You're like the odds of me having a freak accident and dying on this roller coaster, like I, I'm in more risk crossing the street in Brooklyn, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But our, our bodies, our physical mammal bodies, because we are mammals, mm-hmm. which is something I have to remind myself every day. Mm-hmm. My mammal body is like, why are you doing this to me? You are a nightmare. <laughs> you have betrayed me. <laughs> you have betrayed us all. But, like, that's why you do it. It's because you know that it's fun. But you also know when it's going to end. You know when it's going to end. On a roller coaster. On a roller coaster. Yeah. And you go, okay. And you can see the track. You can see the track. You have someone next to you usually. It's rare that you go on a roller coaster by yourself. It does happen. I've done it. It's fun. But, like, but just to be there and go, okay, I know for the next two and a half minutes, you know it's going to be brief. Also, mm-hmm. it's not going to be five yeah. hours of being on a roller coaster. No one would sign up for that. Yeah. Right? You might be um, in the line for five hours. But. Exactly. <laughs> but then you can, you know it's going to be temporary. It's going to, and and even if I want to throw up, even if I feel like this was the worst decision I ever made, after two and a half minutes, it's going to be over. Mm-hmm. And then I get to walk and go have a hot dog and go say, okay, that was enough. I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. go home. But with real life emotional things, when you're walking into it like that and going, oh, my God, what is going to happen? I'm signing up for something, in, like, totally overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like, 
how am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? You, you can't see the track and no. you didn't get in line for it. You did not get in line for it. It was not your choice. You're just suddenly thrown on this thing and get me off this ride. And drinking got me off the ride. Yeah. You know, and so even if I was on it, I didn't feel like I was on it. Yeah. I'm like, what ride? Yeah. You know, and there's, I think you'll, you'll appreciate this. I heard this from somebody, so I can't take credit for it, but this idea of like the difference between delusion and denial, mm-hmm. right? So denial, if if your house is on fire, you're going, okay, well, you know, I guess, you know, one, it's just the one room and I can like live out of it while I'm, you know, it's under <laughs> construction. And I guess the, the constru- it, it won't be that bad. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and you're just like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's denial. Delusion is you're looking at it and going, what fire? Right. Right? Right, right. And so to be in a state for me, I was in a state of pretty constant delusion for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a survival mechanism, right? Like mm-hmm. people do their best. And, and that was me doing my best. Mm. And and to just be like, oh, yeah, like, did I have the worst life on planet Earth? No. Did I have the best life on planet Earth? No. But because on paper things were going really well, mm-hmm. um, I was in a great band. I was living the dream. I had a beautiful apartment, a wonderful spouse, you know, a great family. Like all the things on paper were really great. So then, you know, to to just be like, oh, yeah, but I'm why am I why do I need to get off the ride then? Right. And I wasn't able to be like, oh, actually, underneath this all. Yeah. There's an underlying current of I don't really this isn't what I really want. Yeah. You know, it can be great and, and not the thing that I want. Yeah. You know, and that was part of the thing that I wasn't finding in other music. And just to like mm-hmm. be able to write music about that complexity, like the sacred and the profane, like mm-hmm. this can be beautiful and not the right thing. And what is more seemingly profane than being in a position that people external to you would recognize as ideal mm. and having a deep awareness that it is wrong yeah. for you? Yeah. And wanting to scream and rend and tear it all down yeah. and fearing that you won't have support from people because they yeah. couldn't possibly understand why yeah. you would want to leave this, yeah. this construct behind. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get to performance next, but yeah. um, before we move off this roller coaster thing, <laughs> it, it struck me, you've articulated such a a beautiful metaphor for this whole idea because you're talking about how drink was a way to to not experience the ride mm-hmm. um and this phenomenon that we do with roller coasters where we take a picture of ourselves yeah. in the state that we're in <laughs> on the roller coaster totally and it's almost like you by white knuckling through the ride yeah. finally were able to then create a song that was the picture yeah you oh know? my gosh sam that's Gorgeous. Yes, I love that. And and we love those pictures yeah. because they are us at our most emotionally <laughs> real. Yeah. You know, like this is <laughs> this is what my face looks like when I am concerned that I'm about to become a human pancake That's on right. the pavement. Yeah. Um and th- we recognize at theme parks the value of capturing that level of vulnerability. Yeah. But we don't often think about the idea that artists have to find ways of reliably conjuring that state. Mm, I love that. In order to um, give us songs that uh, remind us of it. Yeah, I love that. So let's go to performance because you talked about the relationship between drink and performance, Mm -hmm. but also because for me, performance is how I first became aware of you as an artist. Mm. Um, I have a a very specific memory of seeing you play for the first time. Oh, really? Um, It was at a 
party. I don't remember the reason for the party. Um, <laughs> Who needs a reason for a party? Yeah. Uh, it was in a room where there were people doing tarot readings. Um, there was maybe like a kissing booth. There was somebody doing fortune telling. Um, there was like a clothing swap happening. And then in a corner, there were musicians playing. Yes. And as one might imagine, when one conjures an image of a party like this, um, <laughs> the musicians were sometimes fighting for attention. <laughs> as, and, and this was at Otto's Shrunken Head? Yes, it was. So you are talking about the gay witch seance that <laughs> my friend, my dear, dear friend and former bandmate, well, current, always bandmate, Charlotte Moreau's, Okay. Uh, she, that was her mastermind, the gay witch seance. It was right after... Uh, not right after, but she had had a residency at Autos, and uh, it was after the Trump election, and it just felt like, oh my God, like we cannot, what what can we put back into this world? And so she masterminded that entire party, and it was one of, we talk about that still. I mean, that was like four or five years ago, and we still are like, gay witch seance. Like, we can never recreate that. It was so perfect. Amazing. I'm I'm so glad that you reminded me that that's what it was, because when I think about it uh, as an event, I don't know if I would have been able to say this before you reminded me what it was called, but it was like, instead of, it was like dunking your head in witch's brew. Yes! Like, <laughs> like, Charlotte, like you've done it. Throwing your head right in the cauldron. Yeah. Um, but what I remember is when you took the stage, you stepped onto the stage and you had your ukulele and you started singing Sick and Suffering. Mm. And you were on your knees and I remember a sense of everything in the periphery going into blur and watching you sing this song. And I want to talk more about that song specifically mm -hmm. in a bit because it's very meaningful to me. Okay. But it was more the state that you were in. It was the fact that you were on your knees, yes, which was visually remarkable. Mm. Um but it was something about the gaze mm -hmm. that was that was on your face. You were your your gaze was angled up, like above everybody who was watching you. I had this distinct sense that you didn't care if we were paying attention to you. Mm. Um and you know, you have talked about this sense of channeling and it was that is a perfect description for what it looked to me like you were doing. Mm. And it was so magnetic and I have I have never seen anybody else really enter that state as a as a musical performer. Wow. And I had the impression that it's not that you were taking the performance seriously, it's that you were in communion with something. Mm. And that that was so personal for you. And yet it was also so compelling in my memory to everybody else in the room. Mm. It it was like you weren't doing it for us but we could not help but honor the communion that was happening in our midst. Wow. And I guess the the very like pumpkin spice latte question <laughs> <laughs> to ask about that is who are you singing to? Oh wow. In that moment. I love a good PSL, man. That's that's a good <laughs> That's it. Thank you for so much before I answer that but for that reflection. That's really meaningful for me and I really appreciate that. That's not 
at on that is not wrong what what mm. is happening there. Okay. Um who am I singing to? I am singing to a broader version of myself. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that really empowers me as a, as a musician and particularly with live performance whereas it's it's one of the few spaces and times and moments in human kind of I'll say like society or like culture, right? Where we actively allow the suspension of disbelief for a certain amount of time, but we're putting ourselves in someone else's hands very physically. Mm. So like a roller coaster is one, but like we're kind of relying on the machine Mm -hmm. in that sense. With live performance, and that could be, you know, theater, music, Mm. you know, poetry readings, storytelling, podcasts, things like that. The audience comes in and says, I need a break from my life Mm -hmm. for the next however many minutes. I'm relying on you. Calgon, take me away. Here we go. And they put themselves in your hands. And I don't know, and this is going to be maybe like a little bit of a witchy woo-woo answer in a certain way too. But so so you have you have the trust of <laughs> however many people show up. Sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 1,200. So I don't know if you – so this is the, the kind of witchy answer is I don't know how you feel about auras or energetic spheres. I feel good about them. Okay, great. I also feel good about them. Um, scientifically, for those of us who are not interested in, in the aura kind of magical interpretation of that, um, the electromagnetic impulse of our heart actually has a radius of 12 feet around us at any point. So um, that is science. I am not a scientist, but I have it on good authority that that is true. And so uh, anytime we walk into a communal space, when you say, you know, and this is kind of a, a one way to think about psychic experiences where psychic really just means – and I'm answering your question, but this is kind of a developed Oh, I'm, I'm on this roller coaster okay, ride. Okay, <laughs> so, so psychic is really an extension of our physical senses, right? So – any time for any physical sense that we have, there is a psychic extension. So when you, we most often hear about clairvoyance, voyance meaning I saw a vision, so having to do with the seeing. So we'll see that sometimes in our mind's eye or in like a film or something. However, people see things. But there's also clairaudience. So I heard a voice. Clairtangency. I felt a touch. Um, clairsentience. Like I had a feeling, an emotional feeling. Mm. Um, claircognizance. Like I just knew. And these senses there you know there are clairs for every physical sense so these senses are everyone has them everyone has them it's like how sometimes you'll see your dog like barking at something that you can't see your dog has it too right Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. when you walk into a room and you don't know why but that person in the corner i'm not going to talk to them they seem Mm -hmm. like they're having a bad day they haven't Mm -hmm. said a word to you they haven't looked at you you just know i'm going to avoid that person over there Mm -hmm. that's a psychic experience we have them all the time we just don't talk about it like that mostly right so when it comes to performance, many artists and, and audience members rely upon psychic interactions to really fill out the experience that they're having, right? Because for someone to just play – and you can imagine – and you've seen this because it, it absolutely happens. You've gone to a show where someone is literally just playing chords and just singing – and which is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a flatness. There can be like a technicalness to it. I guess that's what I'm yeah, trying to I'm, say. Yeah, I'm imagining a um, 
a jazz guitarist trying to get their fingerings exactly right. Sure, and there's a lot of incredible stuff that goes into that that I have no business even doing at all or talking about because I can't even touch that stuff. Um, But it's – so when I am in a state of performance, I lean very, very heavily into my audience's trust in me that I can take up more space than my physical body. Okay. So I am leaning – I am playing into the entire room. Okay. So and if the room feels too small, I play to the entire block. And but I am expanding my consciousness outside of that 12-foot electromagnetic field where it normally is and I'm pushing it out and especially at a place like Otto's Shrunken Head where the, the <laughs> it's it's beautiful and and cozy enough mm-hmm. that you can really hit the walls but there's enough also if you've never been there it's like a, an incredible tiki bar and it has all these wacky decorations and everything mm-hmm. is like you know it looks like it's from the 80s and it's fantastic so i'm playing into every crevice of every tiki cup i'm playing into every yes like millimeter between each strand of hay on the wall uh-huh. you know i'm playing into every person's shoelaces. Uh-huh. I'm I'm literally going into the the middle of the atoms and playing into that space. And am I hearing you right that you're also acknowledging that we as audience members by dint of coming to see you play, we have implicitly said to you, I leave space for you in my 12 foot auric yeah. field. Please come Please into that enter. space. Please enter. And in fact, I I am here to be touched by you in what way I don't know yet know. But please touch me because that's why I'm here. And so I really lean into that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be myself now. And my feeling – and I've said this to my therapist. I will (laughs) let that be very clear. But I've said to her many times, I feel bigger than my body. I feel bigger Mm -hmm. than my body. Mm -hmm. And drinking helped me a lot with that too because a lot of times feeling like my – whatever you want to call it, consciousness, aura, awareness, whatever – expands bigger than my physical body, that can be really scary because that means I can bump into things that I can't see and I can bump into things and people can rub off on me in ways that I can't anticipate. Hmm. So, which is actually funny because you're reminding me that often performing outside feels very scary for me. I don't usually get afraid performing, but I I get a little freaky performing performing outside because there's no walls for me to contain uh-huh. myself in. So when I go into that state of expansion and and playing into everything, it's like it could just keep going into the infinity. Is limitless. So I actually have to be very mindful of holding a barrier for myself that I don't normally have to hold when I'm in a room because I I can just fill the room right with myself whatever the room is whatever the room is. But when I'm outside, I it it just keeps going. So what do so, you do? Do you imagine walls? What do I do? I have to be very conscious. I don't imagine walls, but I imagine like if you can think of like a, a bubble, like a soap bubble, um, like thickening the wall of a soap bubble. Mm. But but I'll, honestly, then I'll often keep it a lot closer mm-hmm. than I normally do. Also, often, if I'm being really honest, sound systems when you're playing outdoors are challenging mm-hmm. and tricky. Um, so I'm more often a little distracted and focused on the sound system, maybe, you know, needing my attention a uh-huh. little bit more. Uh-huh. Um and that gets into that technical, like, okay, this is a show where I'm just going to... So that might be a moment where I, watching you perform, would think, oh, that's a different Jocelyn than yeah, I've seen definitely. at Otto Shrunken Head. Definitely. Here in this field at in Northampton, Massachusetts. Sure, absolutely. And that's so funny. I actually played in a field in Northampton, Massachusetts. I think I thought of that because I was looking <laughs> at your website. I, don't... <laughs> I definitely did that. And, you know, and and it's interesting because, like, 
depending on the shape and the size in the room, but also, of course, at a place like the gay witch, witch seance, you also know, okay, we are literally witches here. Everyone really wants this. So let yes. me like really dig into We've it. We've left so I'm glad. extra space in yeah, our auras. totally. But as a performer, you know, it also depends on context, right? Like I'm not going to do something like that, you know, if I'm on stage with a band, you know, supporting somebody or like, you know, singing back up in there, you know, I'm going to fill the space as I can, but I'm also going to like stay in my zone and be respectful of right. whose show it is. It's not always my show. Right. So that's really important to like be able to, but I get to enjoy it to that level. Yes. No matter who I'm playing with. And that is something that I can do outside successfully. I don't, I, don't, I hope you don't mind if I give you an example at a really wonderful. I would love. Oh my gosh. This, and it, and it's, it sounds a little name droppy, so I like hesitate to say it, but it was such a perfect example. Um, this summer I was on tour opening up for Ani DeFranco with the Righteous Babes review. Um, that was Gracie and Rachel and me and Zoe Bookbinder. And Ani was opening for Brandy Carlisle in Chicago. And so on that show, and it was an outdoor pavilion, you know, on the edge of Lake Michigan, gorgeous 10,000-person venue. Ani let us sing in her band that day, which she did not have to do. Mm-hmm. We were – that could have been an off day for us. She did not need us there. But she's incredible and, and you know, so, so she's like, of course you're going to sit in with the band. So we got to sing back up for her. And I had I, – I went into that day. I had the biggest panic attack, hmm. not because – of the people or the names or anything, but because there was so – it was an outdoor space and I – my aura was just going and going and going and I couldn't contain it. And I freaked out and I was like, guys, I got to I gotta go jump in the lake. I got to go jump in the lake. I got to go jump. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to go. And so thankfully I always tore with my swimsuit. So I, I had to get – and there was this maze of people. It was bananas back there. It was like a city. It was like a city. Mm-hmm. It was – the backstage of that pavilion was like – Trailers and trailers and trailers. There's a huge, like, catering tent. I mean, I've never been any place like that. I'd never sang for that many people before. And so I wasn't – I was just like, how am I going to contain this? So I just – I had to root, and I, I hopped in the lake. I stayed in there as long as I could. I didn't have very long, but I I got in there, and I was like, I am safe. I, I can do this. This is good. And so I went back in, and then I was like, okay – my barrier, and I imagined a dome over okay. the edge of where the seating was. Uh-huh. That's what I had to do, and I and I didn't tell this to anybody. So thanks for letting me have an opportunity to talk about it because I don't I don't talk about this. Like, I'm why s- would I talk about this? <laughs> I'm like, so glad that you told yeah. this story for a number of reasons, but one of them is I can imagine a performer in that moment having a panic attack yeah. because they're worried. They won't be able to reach this many people. No, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my, I'm gonna go off into Mars. Like I can't, and and I wasn't worried about. Will they think I'm good? Will they think I'm a good singer? I know I, I love singing. This is, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried. Is Brandy Carlisle gonna like me? No, I, I had, we had played with her before. I was like, that's fine. I trust Ani. I trust my bandmates. I trust this microphone. I know they're gonna have a great sound system, and they did. Uh-huh. And so by doing that and grounding and rooting, getting in that lake and washing it off and going, okay, I do have autonomy. I can create this barrier. I'm not gonna float onto this space. I am safe. I don't need a drink to. Bring me back into the earth. 
you know, because being grounded and, and being in the earth is really important, right? Like there's a lot of good stuff here. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff mm-hmm. on earth, mm-hmm. you know, which is why it's fun to like toe that line between like, like you're saying the smear, like the consciousness and the subconsciousness, like mm-hmm. the sacred and the profane, the sleeping and the waking. Like it's fun to toe that line. Um, but when it feels like it's going too imbalanced into this direction of going out of control, mm-hmm. it can be really spirally really quickly, you know. So then I got to really enjoy that show. I had a blast. It was like one of my favorite things now that I've ever done. And if I hadn't had that swim and, like, really kind of capped off my energetic field in that moment, I would have not had a good experience at all. I'm so glad that you knew yourself so well as a performer to be able to give yourself that gift. Mm. Because if I'm hearing you right, there was a moment earlier in your evolution (laughs) where that might not have happened. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. Before we move off this idea of auras, I just want to say that I think you have also, in talking about this, helped me understand what was happening for me in that moment of seeing you perform for the Mm. first time, which is that I was realizing that there were corners of my own aura that were permeable. There were were doors that were open that I didn't know we're there or that nobody had ever stepped into before (laughs) and that that's what you were doing in that moment Mm -hmm. is you were stepping into my field of resonance in a way that uh nobody had ever done before i love this i can just quit now i've accomplished my goal (laughs) as an artist i'm good i'm done thank you sam i'm i I sign in i I retire this has been the midnight disease (laughs) on ending careers since 2022 (laughs) Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So staying with this idea of state for a moment, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about a very particular moment in the show I saw you play last week Mm. at Baby's All Right. I'm watching you perform, and I know this moment of transition into that in-between state is coming. Mm. And for me, it ha- I don't, I'd be curious to know if you felt like it happened, when you felt like it happened. I don't want to assume I know your experience. <laughs> but for me, the moment where I felt you enter that same space, uh, that gay witch seance mm-hmm. space, was when you 
performed the song Primate. Mm. And you'd been playing this awesome show up to that point. But before you sang that song, you took your glasses off and you put your hand on your heart. Mm. And when you sang that song, and, and, and you did, I don't even know if you did this consciously, but you did that thing with your gaze again, where for the previous songs, you had been looking out at us, encouraging mm-hmm. us to sing along with you, mm-hmm. doing all the kinds of great, you know, performer showmanship things that people do. But with this one, your gaze went into that upward tilt again, and I had that same feeling like what I would now mm-hmm. <laughs> call... Um, you're you're singing to more auras than just mm. the ones in this room. Yeah. Is that true? Mm-hmm. And if it is, what was it about that song in particular? Yeah, you're very good at noticing. Thank you for seeing me. I feel very seen by you. I appreciate that very much. Um, I will ruin it for you. Just a little bit. That's okay. Because it's funny. I took my glasses off because there was a photographer there and I wanted to have options of <laughs> <laughs> photos. <laughs> it seemed like a good moment. This too, Glasses and not glasses. This too is being an artist. Vanity prevails, my friend. <laughs> so that, yes, was, that checking, was that. I'm checking off Check, the glasses thing. Yep, glasses. Yep, she's vain. Out. Yep. Uh, but you are correct, though, that that was a, a transformative kind of new entering state for me as well. That's absolutely true. And, you know, that song in particular, you know, the content, it's it's about a miscarriage that I had when I was very young. And, you know, going back to the idea of drinking and wanting to get off the ride, I didn't process my feelings around that for years after I, that I had that experience. I, I really didn't process it until I was a few years sober. And I, I got the, the news that my ex-boyfriend who I'd had the miscarriage with, that his then-wife was expecting their second child. And I was still drinking when I found you know, when they had their first child. And uh, when I found out that they were having another child, I lost it. And I was just like, this is... And again, that complexity of singing to, which I say in the song, like singing to your ghost of this baby that I never asked for. Um and never, you know, I've always wanted to be a mom, but was I ready to be a mom? Was this the right person to be a mom with? Like, I can't really reliably answer those questions, you know. Um, but having had such a complex experience of, like, grieving something that you didn't want in the first place, mm. you know. and You're making me think of the breakup song, which spookily yeah. is called Kids. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That where it was like, where is— I'm a spooky is... lady, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gathering this. I'm very spooky. Um but your your observation about the need for kids to come into being as wanting to write a song that was about that wasn't exclusive of certain emotional realities sure that that contained the whole thing you're yeah. you're talking about this in a similar way yeah absolutely thank you for noticing that and and you know that song being called primate it was really just about this reflection of like oh, yeah, my brain has one experience of this, my heart has another experience, and my body has a very third, much more powerful experience that, you know, even still, I mean, it's been, geez Louise, how many years has it been? 12, 13, no, longer than that. It was 2006. Hmm. So what is that, 16 years ago? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. 
if I had a 16-year-old kid right now, my life would be very different. Yeah. Would it be great? Probably. I don't know. No way to know. But, you know, my body still holds on to that in a way that and, – and that's that kind of interesting thing about consciousness, right? And, the, and what I love about performing in, is that you're giving your body permission to weigh in a little bit more, you know? Because on a day-to-day, for me, my brain wants to be in charge 100% of the time. But my brain is really just a lackey. My I, my brain wants to be the CEO and be like, I'm in charge here. You make the decisions based on my opinions and my opinions <laughs> only. But my brain lies to me a lot. Uh-huh. My brain has a lot of outdated data, mm-hmm. a lot of outdated data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't leave room for my heart and my soul and my body to weigh in. So when I actually am performing, I'm allowing myself to be so comfortable in my body because I'm going on stage knowing that, like, Everyone is already accepting of me. Mm-hmm. Are are people judging me in the audience? Absolutely. But they're there for that. We came you know with open mean? auras. Yes. And you came with like, well, but this wasn't what I expected. And she's wearing this. And mm-hmm. she said that. Mm-hmm. And she's this weight or whatever people are thinking. You know, like, I don't know what people are thinking. But mm-hmm. that's what I would be thinking, mm-hmm. you know. And how much of that is social conditioning is the brain, you know, chiming in. Because often my brain chimes in. When my heart needs to weigh in more or when my spirit or my body need to weigh in more. But particularly my body, I tend to be somebody who gives my body like the last say, mm-hmm. you know, when really it, it needs to be the primary focus of most of – of m- many more decisions than I allow it to, you know. I think this is maybe why you found yourself literally vibrating when yeah. you tried to write that first song post-sobriety mm-hmm. is that the brain's job – is to keep certain emotional doors closed. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise the tower's going to crumble. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And so, but, but, so if the, if the emotion can't come into the brain, it's going to find expression in the body. Yeah. And hence shaking, vibrating, yeah. panic attacks. Yeah. All of these phenomenons that, I think everybody listening to this has felt in their own bodies. Yeah. Um, so if I'm hearing you right, it's like you're singing for you is a way of letting, <laughs> like tricking your brain into opening those doors a crack. Yes, 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 yes. The physical way, like some people – uh, this is not me. Some people exercise every day. Uh, I have to sing every day to kind of be in that resonant state where my my body is a resonant chamber for vibration. And when I am out of tune with myself, when I'm out of alignment, when I'm not sure, like, why am I overwhelmed? What's going on? Like, I, I have to lean into singing, which is a way that my body processes being on earth because mm-hmm. it's scary and freaky it to be here. It, it is. is spooky. Mm-hmm. And the longer I stay alive, the spookier it gets. Yes. Okay. So in the vein of all this, then I want to ask you about crying. <laughs> <laughs> did you read my Facebook bio? I did. <laughs> Let's talk about crying. Making music and crying since... I love crying. I won't... <laughs> Say the year if you don't want me to say the year. But 1983. 1983. I am proud to be a 39-year-old <laughs> Taurus. <laughs> I'm a 40-year-old Taurus. Oh, look at that. When's your birthday? April 20th. <gasps> Mine's the 23rd. Oh, my God. We're only like a year and three days apart. Joint birthday party look next year. at us go. Um, so, well, it, let me just, you said I love crying. <laughs> Tell me everything. I love crying. Um, 
I I just I th- but I think it's hilarious because <laughs> it's this weird moment that like it's your again like you're saying like it's your body reacting to something that your heart and your mind maybe like can't contain you know not because they're not capable but it's just not their job you know it's just not their job to do that your body's like I got this <laughs> hold on your <laughs> eyes are about to get real wet your nose is gonna have to get stuffy it's like what is like how is that the reaction like if you think about it on like a technical level it's like that's funny to me like it's uh-huh. like huh every time I have a big feeling my eyes fill with water. It's like, what is that? Like, I, I don't know how that happened. I just um, had this eerie realization that you talked about how sometimes when you used to drink too much, you would sweat. Yeah. And it's almost like your body's saying, like, you will be leaking moisture. Yeah. <laughs> like, Even if you're going to drink James <laughs> That's right. to resist mm-hmm. the, this feeling. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I cry for literally every reason. Sometimes I'll be brought to tears when I'm eating. And then I'm like, because I'm like, this food is so delicious. <laughs> I'm like cr- crying and eating at the same time. Sometimes I cry because I'm so warm. Mm. I'll be like, my home is warm. Like I'm getting choked up thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm warm right now. I have warm clothes. Mm-hmm. I have warm shoes on. Mm-hmm. That makes me cry. I'm mm. like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I laugh at myself and then it's over. And I'm like, okay. Do you remember an initial instance in your life of recognizing <laughs> the the humor and the profundity of this crying state? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I mean, again, my I was raised in a household where, like, really kind of anything goes. <laughs> like, my parents were, like, you know, artists and, and are very, like, deeply weird, you know, in their in their beautiful way of of being very dedicated to being themselves, mm-hmm. very dedicated to being themselves. So on one hand, it was every feeling is welcome. We're mm-hmm. just, okay, this is where we're at. You know, if we're yelling, we're screaming, we're crying, we're laughing, whatever, this is what we're doing. Um, so it was very welcome mm. uh, growing up. But then on the other hand, um, I, I think my emotional capacity, <laughs> I was told a lot that I was too sensitive Hmm. Um, by people in my life growing up. And so they're like, okay, you know, get it together. Like, that's enough. Like, you've you've gotten your cry. Mm-hmm. That's enough. And and I mean this with a lot of love, but, like, my mother was very, you know, she because she had a capacity. You know, she only had so much bandwidth, right? And she was, like, running a house and trying to, like, you know, live her life and raise kids. Like, I, I'm not blaming her but for having a limited bandwidth for, like, so you know, a small child's emotional capacity. But she would, like, let me let it out. And then she's like, okay, now that's, you're done. You're done crying now. Mm-hmm. And and often to get me to the next phase, she would make me laugh. And mm-hmm. she's very funny. It, it's it's noteworthy to me that you were sometimes told, stop emoting at n- now. Yeah. You, you have emoted enough. <laughs> yeah. And so much of our conversation has been about this capacity you feel in yourself to infinitely expand your emotive capacity. Yeah. Um, so... And and that that there's a sense of fear about going too far with it, not to over psychoanalyze your childhood, but <laughs> no, please. <laughs> that it seems like there were these moments where no, you were you're totally right. There was a an awareness. I don't know if your mom would have put it this way that oh, Jocelyn could just keep crying. Oh yeah, and and for that reason, that's part of why I feel so comfortable on stage mm-hmm. because that's my house. Mm-hmm. When I'm on stage, you're in my house. I get to decide when we're done crying. I get to decide when you're done crying. You're going to cry now. 
you cry. You know, and, I, and people come up to me after shows, they're like, you made me cry. I'm like, good. <laughs> that means I'm doing my job. You, what you just said about people coming up to you and <laughs> saying that they've made you cry, uh, you could not possibly have anticipated the segue on my little chicken scratch piece of paper. Unless I was psychic. Um, oh, right. <laughs> Which we are going to talk about. Oh. Um, but one of the reasons I'm interested in talking to you about crying is because I often find listening to your music brings me to a state of the precipice of tears. And I excellent. sense that this is something you hear a lot. Oh, yes. Excellent. Good, good. And <laughs> <laughs> I had an experience. So you performed with uh, your band at the time, the Peggies, yes. at um, a Family Ghost Live show. Yes, thanks for having us. The fa- oh, it was my pleasure. Um, and we had you guys open the show with your song, Sick and Suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had one person in particular come up to me at the end of that show in a state of near tears mm. and she said you started the show there you can't do that <laughs> uh-huh. and I of course I, I mean you know we, we laugh cried a little bit about it and I said I, I hope you're feeling okay. Thank you so much for coming to the show. But in my mind, I was like, oh, I started there on purpose. Oh, yeah. No, you're a very, you know, you're a craftsman. You know what you're doing. The idea was to elicit this state of emotional openness. Yeah. So that then when the storytellers came out and performed, oh, yeah. the the emotional or the, the brain doors that we talked about earlier yeah. were open a crack. I love that. Um, Great work. But there is a lyric in that song, Sick and Suffering. That um, I would be. I promise I'm not just saying this. Is is part of the fabric of the impulse to create this show? Oh wow! That's and the amazing. lyric is uh, no. It's I'm being totally sincere. Um, the lyric is, "How will you spend your time?" Oh, yeah. And that line, just saying it out loud, uh, is very emotionally present. I feel it. And I guess I'm curious where that line came from. Wow, that's wonderful, Sam. I am honored. Again, I quit again. I <laughs> I retired twice. I had gotten back into music for about 10 minutes there, and now I'm quitting again because now I've accomplished my creative goal. I mean, that's that's the point of art, right? Like, that's what mm-hmm. we do this for is to, like, hopefully somebody will make something because of something that we made, right? And it keeps going and it gets to grow. Um I'm going to ruin it for you, but you're going to love it. Great. This is going to be the best ruining you've ever had. So (laughs) I'm going to destroy you for a second. So that song, Sick and Suffering, again, came to me in a very – it started with the the verse. So so that section of the how will you spend your time is kind of – there's an intro to the song and a outro to the song that are kind of similar. And they're bookends, and I'm going to tell you about it. So – the song came to me at first, I think it was in the shower, uh, the verse. Um, I don't even remember the lyric now, but it, it it came started with the verse. And the song came to me, figured out the chords pretty quickly. It was a very brain dump song that it just the whole thing was came to me, it was done. But I was like, oh, I hear it. I got it out. I learned how to play it quickly. Um, this song is pretty boring to me. Hmm. I didn't feel attached to it at all. Hmm. And... 
so I had it in the pocket for a little while and, you know, didn't really think anything of it because it sounded similar to a different song that I'd had in the rotation already at the time. I don't even remember what it was now. But uh, I had gone back to my Star Island songwriting retreat. And as I mentioned, they rotate the facilitators every year. So you never know who's going to show up. So this year, that year that I had gone, I think it was 20 – I don't remember. But um, there was a a facilitator that year who I could not stand. (laughs) He was – a misogynist prick. And he treated the women very, very differently than he treated the men. And mm. it was it was a really um, uncomfortable situation. So in this class that I – because I was pretty dedicated to um, uh, taking his classes anyway and, you know, spiting him and being like, <laughs> how dare you think that you can out-songwrite me? Yes. I will – I'll show you. Mm-hmm. So in one of the classes. Being a, a righteous babe yourself. <laughs> being, I was like, how dare you? I wasn't even a righteous babe yet, but I just had self-righteousness for sure that yeah. I've been born with. But so he came in one day and he's like, okay. So one of the things, his songwriting prompt for the day was, you know, one of the tools that the Beatles used. And already I was like, oh, no. I was like, fuck this guy. You know, I was like. Oh, do tell, I was sir. Like, oh, thank you, mister. You know, but he's like, one of the tools that the Beatles used in songwriting was bookends. So a song would start with a little, uh, you know, snippet, and then it would ha- you would have your verse and chorus, and then it would end with the same snippet, and that would bring you together. And I, and I was like, all right, if it, oh really, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you, straight to fucking hell, you goddamn cocksucker! I hated this guy so much. And so I was like, here's my here's my intro. I'm gonna die. You're gonna die. How will you spend your time? Telling me how to write, and and my my honest next wow. thing that I had inter- internally experiencing was telling people. I mean, he was he was very inappropriate with all of the women. Like he yeah. was hitting on us. It was bad. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't. It wasn't just like he wasn't my taste. He was like actively harmful. This yes, guy. Yes. So true toxic. True toxic. So then to like have that moment of being like, oh yeah, fuck you. I'm gonna write a song that like <laughs> tells you that you're doing it wrong without, and you're never even gonna know because I'm you know, puffing myself up. I'm yeah. so smart. I'll show you. You won't even know that this is about you. You won't even ever fucking know. And then at the end, I was like, oh, this actually makes a great intro to that song I've had that I've been less interested in. <laughs> and it gave it more meaning because I was like, wait a minute. This is true. Uh-huh. If I am going to die, am I going to, which I've always, that's come up as a theme in my songwriting for ages. But this idea of like, what am I going to do with the time that I have left? And yes, that is like Frodo Baggins, whatever. Yes. But like, it's true. And and to go, am I going to spend my time, quote unquote, fighting this person who is never going to learn from me, has no interest in me at all, as if he doesn't even consider me a human. He's not treating me like one. So why am I trying to fight this? And then to to attach it to this thing that what this other, the rest of the song, which was literally about, I have this chin hair I sing about it. It's right. I, there's a whisker I grow, and I pull it out, and I'm like, "Oh, what the? What is my life? What? What am I doing? What is? What is this?" And it reminds me that I'm a mortal being because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it comes back. It mm-hmm. comes back. Life goes on. You cry. You laugh. You eat pizza. Uh-huh. You go to the movies. Oh wait, my whisker's back. You know what I mean? It's like it's part of it. And right. then to end it with this, I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed because yeah. that melody came back of that intro. So I thank this guy. Thank God for this. Mm-hmm asshole mm-hmm. who I couldn't stand who got me out of myself for long enough even if it was out of rage and spite hmm. 
to say, like, who am I as an artist? Who, what kind of artist do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of artist that writes all, uh, that that tries to tell him to his face, here are all the reasons why this is not okay? No, I'm going to spend my time being fearless, being telling other artists that there are no rules, that they can do whatever they want. You know, because he really wanted to come down and say, these are the rules and you can only do this and you can only have these certain chords and let's talk about – I'm like, what? No. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. no. No. <laughs> Jocelyn, you are melting <laughs> – my brain. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't fully destroy it for you in a bad way, but I love knowing this. Okay, great. I, I, I thought love, you would. It deepens <laughs> my love for the song, and I'm sure it will not surprise you to learn that my assumption uh-huh. about this song is, I mean, to me, this song is basically an articulation of the midnight disease. I'm so glad. It is the That's depth amazing. of night. You are alone with the moon and your pen. <laughs> yeah, and. You are in a state of great, cracked open Mm. vulnerability and asking yourself the deepest possible question. Mm. I'm going to die. You're going to die. How will I spend my time? I know there's something inside of me that needs to come out. Is there even a point to doing that? And that this song is this beautiful expression of gratitude for that mystery and then resolves, as you say, in this note of "I'm not afraid," and yet I will, so, and and yet I will still pursue, yeah. and yet I will still try to capture it in my own way. Yeah. And to hear that actually it was written in a state of dudgeon, <laughs> a state of of righteous indignation, oh yeah, <laughs> and and spite and and fueled, and and which which wraps back around to the same idea mm-hmm. that I was I was just expressing. Yeah. I love knowing that. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Sam. I mean, that's so moving to me. And thank you again so much. And like, and also to kind of touch on your point earlier of like, for you, crying has like kind of very specific windows where you have access mm-hmm. to it. Like, these are the, the the focal points. For me, anger. I only have certain access to it in certain places. Mm. I have limitless, infinite access to crying. <laughs> <laughs> anger, oof, tiny windows, tiny, tiny mm. windows. And telling idiot man-children that they're wrong is one of the few windows that feels wide open for me yes. in terms of anger. Um, but, you know, how do I want to do that? Do I actually want to spend my time doing that in a way that is, like, directing my energy back towards them in this limitless loop of mm-hmm. insanity that, like, no one's going to learn from? Like, mm-hmm. no, you mm-hmm. know? But, like, to do that through music, you know, music feels like a way that I get to be angry. I wasn't planning to go here next, but since you brought that up, it, it makes me think of your song... I hope I'm not messing up the title. Look at me. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> you picked a doozy. <laughs> su- such a, a yeah, a te- qualitatively yeah tender, delicate song. Yeah, but to my ear, at least, shot through with anger. Thank you, thank you for hearing me. Um, yeah, is that song an example of your goal of continuing to? use music to channel anger? That's a great question. Uh, Yes and no. That song, yes, in the way that writing it was really, really healing for me to to allow myself to be that angry. And thank you for hearing it because I was very adept at disguising my anger in like a very Uh plucky, sweet, you know, and Emily Hope Price from Pearl and the Beard, she did the string arrangement for that song. And she's really the only person I would have trusted to handle that song, actually, because I was so angry. And she knew very deeply the depth of the content that I was angry about. Um, but to really kind of, you know, 
if you weren't listening to the words, you might not know how angry I mm-hmm. am mm-hmm. about it and still am. Um, but there's a reason that I've only performed that song one time hmm. and will probably never do it again. I, I, I hate to say never, but, you know, it's very unlikely that I will ever perform that song again. Um, and so the no part of the answer is that I would love to explore musical territory where I get to be that angry, if not angrier, and perform it. And get to fill my space, fill because that idea of filling my whole the whole aura up in space with anger to me that feels like singing in the pavilion, right? You know what I mean? Without the dip in the lake, uh-huh. it, it's too much. Like I'm still working on that, right. so that's the next frontier. <laughs> so I hope to. You would turn the whole world into the tower. <laughs> I might. I know. I I feel that you know because I I know that you know we're all on this emotional journey together when when it, when we're in the room you know mm-hmm. so it's like if i am responsible for you know not responsible that's not really the truth but like if i am a catalyst for other people's yes. you know emotional state um i want i take that really as a huge responsibility and i i want to make sure that i am solid in my feelings before i can ask others to take that journey with me and so if i'm hearing you right the reason you've only performed it once to this point is that it feels hard to stay grounded it, uh, in the performance. Next to impossible. I do have one more question about it, but yeah. I'm going to couch it in the other thing that I really want to talk to you about, which we haven't come to yet, which is psychic mediumship. Yeah. So I guess tell me first about how you came into – I think you've been alluding to it throughout our conversation, mm. but – how did you come into an awareness of psychic mediumship as a practice, as an offering? Yeah. And then how did you come into an awareness of your own capacity to make that offering? Yeah, that's a great way to phrase that. Thank you, Sam. Um, so when I was a – I've always been interested in weird shit, you know, <laughs> definitely a freaky, you know, person. Spooky, spooky by nature. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. But when I was a teenager, I had a friend um, in the town I grew up in, in New Jersey, who she her family had always lived in the house that she lived in for many generations. And, you know, we were hanging out one day and uh, I was about to leave her house and I'm standing on the stairwell. I'll never forget this. She I'm standing on the stairwell and she's looking at me, but she's looking like right past me. So almost looking like at my ear. And I'm like, what is she looking at? And I'm like turning around and I see on her face, she's mouthing the words, no, don't do it. And I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, what is going on? So I turn and the minute she stops talking, like mouthing, I felt, I'm not joking, a finger in my ear. I felt someone's finger in my ear. And my friend goes, Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Because I, like, flinch. I jump out of my seat. I'm like, what was that? And she's like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) She starts (laughs) apologizing profusely. And I was like, what just happened? Like, I saw your face. Like, you looked scared. Like, what is going on? And she explained to me that she was clairvoyant. And and I was 15. She was maybe 16. And she said that her family members who had lived in the house before her still resided in the home. And that – a lot of her family members could still see and hear and experience their presence there. And did you feel – and she said to me, I didn't say it. She said, did you feel someone's finger in your ear? And I said, yes, Whoa. I did. Whoa. And she goes, that was my uncle so-and-so. 
he was playing a prank on you because he knows that you can do this too. And I was like, what is happening? So I, I was like. I have just had a chill. <laughs> yes. It has so, raced through my body. Yes, it has. Please so, continue. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was about to leave and I was like, I need to sit down. So I sit on the couch and suddenly you ever, you ever like have that feeling where you're just like, or, or like, you know, in those Disney movies, like in Snow White, how it's just like you're in the woods, but then all of a sudden like the blinking lights and it's just like all the owl eyes just start blinking. And you're just like, all these eyes are looking at me. And you're just like, what is happening? All of a sudden I could just, I couldn't see, but I could feel, oh my God, there are so many people in this room. What is happening? And I sat down on the couch next to her and I'm like, Abby, you have to tell me more about this. Like what is happening? And she's kind of explaining it. And suddenly she looks over and and I felt a hand on my knee. And she's like, do you feel that hand on your knee? And that was her way of of validating my experience by her saying it before I said it. You know what I mean? Like she could see what, was, what I was feeling. She saw somebody placing a hand yes. on your knee. And she saw me look down at my knee as it was being placed. And so she said, can you feel that hand? Because she was acknowledging me acknowledging it. And can I just clarify, <laughs> her experience is that she's seeing the uncle about yes. to put his finger in your ear. Yes. Her experience is that she's seeing somebody about to put their hand on your knee. Yes. Your experience is not seeing. No. But feeling the finger, feeling the hand. Yes. And feeling energetically. Like if you're in a room with your eyes closed at a party, you still feel all and you can hear, right? Yes. It was like that. So, And that goes back to the different types of clairs, right? Like the clairvoyance, yes. clairsentience, clairtangency. So I was experiencing clairtangency. Okay. She was experiencing clairvoyance. And and um, and so I had, of course, a million questions, and I went into, and she's telling me she's very open about it, and she said, you know, this is very normal, it's very natural, but also, you know, the thing with, you know, infinite or post life <laughs> consciousness, you know, is that they have a different experience of time and space than we do. So if it happens, so the first thing she told me, and. Thank God this was my first lesson into this realm was boundaries. She was like, mm. if it becomes too much for you, you can tell them to back off. <laughs> because imagine that they're just living people. If they're coming into your space in a way that you don't want them to, it's up to you to ask them to leave. And you don't owe them being polite. They're infinite. They're dead. They don't care. Like, it's okay. You know, and I was like, well, then why did I – what you know? Why did he put his finger in my ear? And she's like, "Well, it doesn't mean he's not human still. Like he still wants to play pranks on you because it's right. funny for him. You know what <laughs> I mean?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, like you know, like when, when our consciousness goes somewhere else and uh-huh. we're not physical, we're still ourselves, right? Right? So it depends on the personality of the person that you're talking with, right? Like uh-huh. people are still themselves; they don't automatically become angelic creatures uh-huh. <laughs> just because they're dead, you know? So, um, and the, the hand on the knee was, I think, an aunt of hers or something. And she said, oh, she's asking you for tea. She's a little less aware that she's not alive. And so you can just wow. turn to her and say, hey, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. I don't need any tea. Thank you very much. And so I did that. And and it went away. The hand went away. And, you know, so, so now, Sam, I'm shaking. Yes. <laughs> I'm 15 years old. I'm shaking. And I, at the time, was living in Westfield, New Jersey in a house that was built in 1902. Mm-hmm. So, and my friend was like, she had been to my house and she's like, you have for sure have presences, energies, ghosts in your house. I don't like the word ghost because it has a connotation of yeah. being like spooky and haunted, which right. is just sometimes true, but not always true. And so I go back to my house and all of a sudden it was like a light switch flipped on and I was fully aware 
of energies in that house. And it's similar to what we were saying before. It's like we have psychic experiences all the time where you go into a room and you're like, oh, that person's having a bad day. Or you mm -hmm. think of a friend and then they call you. It's like we're connected in ways that we have no way of clocking, right? But then to go into a house and be like, oh, my God, like there are people here. So one of the one of the wackiest. So then then from there on, I was just like living in this house with I didn't have clairvoyant experiences yet. My clairvoyance is a little different. Now I have it, – it's a little different than Abby's was. But um, I had a lot of clairaudience, so hearing, which, mm -hmm. again, as a musician – and I was writing songs then, so it was uh -huh. very similar. But also more clairtangency experiences and, and claircognizant experiences. One of the wackiest things that happened was I kept hearing the name Matthias in my head. Matthias, Matthias, Matthias. And I'm like, what is this? So, of course, being the dutiful nerd that I am, my best friend and I went to the library and we went to, like, the town records and looked up um, my house from when it was built in 1902. Uh, I lived on Clark Street and it was the first house that was ever built on the block and the man who built its name was Matthias Come Clark. on. <laughs> right? So stuff like that would happen all the time. It was constant. And to a degree where I created, like, a like energetic relationships with the energies in my home. And in a way, it was so comforting, especially as like a teenage girl. Oh, my God. I was like <laughs> teased relentlessly. You know, like I, I, uh -huh. I had some great friends in high school, but I also dealt with like a lot of, um, you know, teenage girl stuff, mean girl stuff. Yeah. And, and it was yeah. hard. And, and so to like come home and feel like I had an energetic presence in my room that was there for me and was very present and comforting and kind and would leave when I asked him to and would stay when I needed extra support and you yeah know. you're you're out in the world dealing with people who are bound and determined to violate your boundaries <laughs> yeah and living people you're yeah. coming home to yeah. presences that Abby has assured you have respect for boundaries yeah thank you for saying that yeah and you know and I and I can't say that I can't say that it, it Everybody respects boundaries in a different way, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there were certain energies in the house that were very respectful of them. And then others less so. It, it took more effort, you know. So I don't, I don't want to say that it's like a, a totally like clean process all the time. But like to get to flex that muscle and be like, no, I'm going to stand up for myself more and claim my own space more because I am dealing with something unseen and invisible and infinite. I feel actually more empowered to – claim my space here than I would to a physical person because mm -hmm. I have to be nice to a physical person. I don't have to be nice to you. Right. You know, not that I wasn't nice, but, you know, it just was this new experience of getting to, like, flex my energetic sphere. Uh -huh. So I so that went on for a few years. And then I we my parents moved out of that house when I was 18. And, and actually the whole time I have a younger sister who's about six and a half years younger than me. And the whole time I would ask them, just leave her alone. She's too little. Because hmm. at the time, she was only like nine. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was like, she's too little. Leave her alone. But then by the time we moved out of that house, they started moving stuff. And it was, you know, like stuff would be moved. things, Doors would open. Lights would go on and off. And uh -huh. it was a whole thing. And so they kind of introduced her <laughs> at the very end there. But now we have a great relationship about that too. But so then, I, you know, I went off to college. Life goes on. You know, I was always interested in paranormal stuff and Stayed fascinated by it, but didn't really make much of a practice of it in any dedicated way. Did you continue to have experiences of awareness? Yeah, but in a very much more relational to space, mm -hmm. like walking into a space and being like, oh, this place is mm, – don't mm -hmm. go in that corner. You know? <laughs> or like <laughs> definitely be in this corner, you know. Um, but then as time went on, 
you know, I had a long experience with, you know, numbing my senses out. And, and that definitely contributed to being less aware. And so, You're talking about through substances. Yeah, through substances and through delusion and denial and, you know, yep. different choices I was making. So, so to kind of get back into a space of like, okay, so now fast forward, I was – I'd been five years sober. Uh-huh. Uh, I was post a couple of breakups. I was living by myself for the first time in Brooklyn. It's, hmm. The year is 2019. Fast forward <laughs> to 2019. And um, I realized very consciously, it was very kind of funny, that I was like, huh, this is the closest I've been lifestyle-wise to the space that I was in when I was a 15-year-old at living in, you know, I had a room in the attic and I was very much alone a lot during that time. This is a conscious thought you had. Yeah, I was like, huh. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of a noticing of like, oh, yeah, I, I, like conditions here are very – like I'm living alone, you know, I I – can do whatever I want. I spend my time mostly most nights just by myself and I'm enjoying being single and things being quiet and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. And then I had this realization. I was like, wait a minute, I'm alone and I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. So I was like, <laughs> I know what I want to do with my time. How will you spend your time, Sam? How will you spend your time? What do I want to do? I want to watch spooky YouTube videos <laughs> for hours. That's what I want to do. So I was like going on a deep dive into like paranormal, you know, and I was just goofing off at first. Like it was just not really a thing. And then I, having mentioned my my morning practice, I was deep into my, mm-hmm. you know, meditation and, and journaling and morning practice. And one of the first things they tell you when you're, when you, because anyone can learn how to be a medium. Anyone can develop their psychic skills. Everyone has access to this. The first thing they tell you if you want to sharpen these strengths that you already have is to meditate daily. And I'd already been doing that for five years, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. I go into this thing, and now I'm having a synchronicity wave, my friend, a wave (laughs) that I started writing them down, and I couldn't keep up. I was feeling – I had journals and journals and journals of stuff that was happening. And one of the most unstoppably recognizable things that happened was every day for an entire month, every day for a month, I would hear a little direction in my head that would say – Walk this way. So I had a job. I was working in Midtown, and I was living in Dittmas Park. And I, I would be walking to the train or whatever. Get, the voice would say something like, turn left here instead of right, or turn left instead of going straight, or get on that train car instead of this train car. And I would just follow it because uh-huh. why not? Right. What else What else am I doing? You know, like, why not? It's like, I hear a voice. Okay. Right. These, so, are, these are harmless provocations. Of course. I have total reference that this is a safe thing to do. Right? So – um. You know, I built a career on, like, a voice I heard in my head that gave me a hunch that I followed yes. that literally built my career. So I was like, sure, why not? Every single time I did that, I would run into somebody I knew in Whoa. New York City every single day for a month. Oh my God. And I started thinking that something was wrong with me. I, I actually mm-hmm. was, like, considering, and I called some friends. I was like, should I, like, get psychiatrically, like, evaluated? Like, something uh-huh. feels off. And instead, <laughs> what I did was, I mean, I thankfully have a great therapist who I talked to about it a ton. Mm-hmm. And her main advice was, uh, or suggestions were like, just, you know, look both ways when you're crossing the street. Like, make sure you're <laughs> eating three meals a day. Like, don't neglect your body. Like, get right. back into your mammalness because, you know, you need to take care of that first. Because if right. you're delirious and sleep deprived and haven't eaten mm-hmm. and aren't looking both ways, you're going to, like, get lost in la-la land. And that's not safe. Right. So. And is this intuition directing you to do things that wouldn't be good for your body. Yeah, exactly. And my experience with that is no, mm-hmm. uh, that my intuition always has my highest and greatest good in mind mm-hmm. um, and everyone else's as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when I don't check that with have I actually then put in food in my mouth. Because yes. I, can, I can hear the impulse, but if I don't like uh-huh. take care of the body, <laughs> like yeah. that's on me. Uh-huh. So um, 
what I did was I, I started going online and looking at more and more videos and going, okay, what do you do if you're hearing voices? What do you do if – and I Googled it. I literally just Googled it. I was like, what is wrong with me? What is happening? <laughs> and I found this amazing uh, teacher, Nikki Sutton, who is based in the UK, and she has an incredible YouTube library of all kinds of stuff that you are you could possibly get into. And she had this one video that says, if you think that you're hearing voices or something, find a community of other mediums because there are other mediums out there. Now, I didn't really know at the time – what I've learned is the difference between psychic and medium. They're two different things. Uh -huh. So psychic is what we're talking about, that extension of our physical senses. And that works from physical plane to physical plane, right? It's still physical, but it's just an extension of it. Mediumship then, we're opening up, we're using our psychic senses and opening up from the physical realms to unseen unphysical realms. Right. So we're This we're is the uncle on the stairs. This is the uncle on the stairs, exactly. So now I'm like, okay. So I Google it and I thought, okay, New York, click, 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 New York medium meetup. Uh -huh. There was one the next day. Synchronicity. Two blocks away from my work. Uh -huh. 15 minutes after my shift ended. And I was supposed to have plans that night that had gotten canceled. Hmm. So I was like, okay, very subtle universe. Thank you <laughs> for being so on the nose. So I go. I, and I'm like running there. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was meeting people that I had. I felt like I was meeting up with old friends who I hadn't seen in a decade. And I walk in and it's this teacher who, I mean, she looked like the quintessential like New York, like heavy eyeliner, like <laughs> spooky, like long wig. Like she was like such a Fantastic. She was amazing. And like there were about six other mediums there that they had been meeting there in a circle. So mediumship circles are just, you know, regular meetings mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. mediums. That, and we come together to practice skills mm -hmm. um, and help each other out. So uh, they'd been meeting there for years. And so I came in. I'm like, hi, I'm new. And she's like, yes, we know. <laughs> and uh, and I sit down and, you know, we did a couple of exercises. And, and she's <laughs> I imagine like, them being like, uh, we know you're new here, but you're not new. <laughs> yeah. Sam? That's literally what she said to me. So, Whoa. well, similar. She she said, because so we did a couple of exercises and then she's like, okay, now you're going to give readings to each other. And she puts us in little groups. And I raised my hand. I said, hi, I've never done this before. And she literally laughed in my face. Right. And she said, not in this lifetime, honey. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. Fool. Wow. Like, all right. Wow. So, yeah. So she's like, just trust. So mm. she she gave me some tools to learn how to protect my energy, protect my aura, make sure that nothing unwanted is coming in. So setting boundaries first is number one really crucial uh, step. But then after that, after you feel grounded and protected and safe, to get to a place of openness and that idea of, of being, okay, trust it, trust mm -hmm. it. And and like you were saying earlier with song lyrics, like it doesn't have to make sense to you right now. And 99% yeah. of the work of mediumship is getting out of your own way and getting your ego off the table mm -hmm. so that the stuff that doesn't make sense, because the stuff that doesn't make sense is usually the most powerful stuff. Yeah. And I don't need to understand what it means. It's not my job to interpret what it means for my clients or, or people I'm giving readings for. It's literally just my job to say what I'm experiencing. It's not interpretive. No, it's not interpretive at all. Mm -hmm. And so that's most of the work. So I sat down and there were these two strangers, a man and a woman, and I, I gave the man the reading, and I said, oh, I'm experiencing such and such and such. And he's like, oh, yes, that's my father. And I'm saying, well, and your sister. And he's like, oh, yes, yes, and she's living. And he's, he validates everything that I said. And were they uh, – what was their emotional state as you were giving them this reading? Well, you're onto something. 
you are psychic as well. So the man was was pretty matter of fact about it all. And he was, you know, very. And so evidential mediumship is also one of the kind of focal points of the work is you're looking to acquire certain pieces of evidence that there would be no way for you to know that, Mm -hmm. you know, because now, especially like you can Google people, you can look at their Facebook profile, like it's easier to kind and you can also like make an assumption because of our psychic nature Mm -hmm. to say, I sense that you're feeling in a bad mood or you feel like, and that's maybe not, sometimes that is helpful, Mm -hmm. but that's not evidence. That's, that's an observation, Uh right? Evidence is saying. And slightly interpretive, right? Exactly. And so evidence is saying, there's a hammer. I understand that your father worked in construction and that he had, he worked with his hands a lot and that he taught you these skills so that you could carry on the family business, but you were resistant to it and you wanted to go on your own path. Knowing that he maybe had a family business is something that you can look up on Facebook, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the internal part of he taught it to you when you were young, but yep. you resisted it, that's evidence. Does that make sense? Yes. So there's a difference. And so learning how to do that over the years, and I, and I still, I'm always learning. You know, a good mm-hmm. medium, is, I think, mm-hmm. is always, and a good artist, you know, all of us are, you know, we're always learning mm-hmm. and trying to expand our skills. But so the man was very matter of fact about it. He's like, yep, validate, validate, validate. That sounds mm-hmm. great. I moved on to this woman. I give her a reading, and she is weeping, Sam. <laughs> she starts to weep. And <coughs> speaking of crying, she's just weeping. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you okay? Like, what have I done? Is this bad? She's like, no, 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 you're doing great. Like, she was really <laughs> supportive. She was like, this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing here. And it was just such a transformative moment. And the rest of the night, I mean, I have stories about that night, but uh, – I left, and it was like the entire world just, again, the light switch just flipped on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, they're everywhere. Uh So now I was – the first month, I was basically just like in a fetal position on my bed. I could barely – thank God I had a job that I could just – I was a receptionist at the time, and I could just go into my job, do my job, and go home. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have to put in a lot of like mind power into Mm -hmm. it because Mm -hmm. I did not have the bandwidth. I I was – so overwhelmed. It's like that feeling, I describe it as, you know, when you get into your car and you forget that you've left the radio on at full blast? Yes. And then you're like, ah! you know, you're like, it takes you a second because you're disoriented and now because it's so loud, you like can't see. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I can't see, where's the knob? You know, it doesn't make sense, but like you've everyone's experienced that. It was like that for a month right. of like not being able to find the off switch. Uh-huh. So thankfully, I talked to a friend of mine and she was so funny. My friend, Laura, I called her. I was like, Laura, what's happening to me? And she's like, oh, the same thing happened to my friend Jackie. (laughs) So she gives me this number of this woman who is a mediumship teacher. And she's like, oh, yeah, same thing happened to me. More synchronicity. More synchronicity. And and so I started studying with, with this wonderful teacher, Jackie Pierce, and she has an incredible training program. And she taught me how to, like, harness it and, mm-hmm. you know, even more boundaries. And, you know, here's how we can tap into ourselves and create, you know, all these tools. It was just incredible to just learn so quickly. And so after – and my first teacher, that very first class, too, she encouraged me, too. I was like, well, now what? Like, now Because, <laughs> like, everything that I thought I knew – Everything that I thought I knew was out the window, including everything you thought you knew about life as you knew it. Everything yes. about everything uh-huh. about everything. Uh-huh. The Earth is nothing. Like we are, <laughs> we are nothing. So I had to go, like get back in my body, <laughs> which was really hard. And wait, just to, um, just to mark this in time, this yeah. is five <laughs> years post Tower One. Yes, it was three days before the five year anniversary of Come On, not drinking. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, three days before. 
And also, it made me completely question my path as a musician because my whole life, I was like, that was my only focus. Music, mm -hmm. music, music, music. This is what I'm doing. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And it didn't make me question myself as a as an artist in, in terms of I always knew that I would always make music and, and you know, that's not negotiable for me. That's like my blood. I can't not yes. be a musician. Yes. But it made me question my path as a professional musician and a career musician and to go, can I perform anymore? Can I be on a stage? Can I be in a recording booth? Can I, the music industry, forget it. <laughs> like if I, you know, can I get down with any of this? All of the... Because it felt too comparatively small? No, it felt corrupt. And, you know, we can do whatever we want with our gifts. And this is true of every artist, right? Like we can be a musician just to our plants. Yeah. That is valid and perfect. That uh -huh. is wonderful. Uh -huh. I can be a medium and just use it to decide which train car to get on to see <laughs> what what friend I'm going to run into today. That yeah. is enough. That is absolutely enough. Right. And for me, I knew there was something else there. Mm -hmm. I was like, this feels like a service that mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. provide. But also then I was like, and I'm a receptionist? Like, what? <laughs> like, also, I got to pay my bills now? Like, right. I'm, I'm a cosmic light beam and I have to right. pay bills? Like, <laughs> I'm a cosmic you. receptionist. <laughs> Literally. I was like, I'm a cosmic receptionist. I cannot. It was just too much. Hello, um, spirit realm calling. <laughs> no, literally, it's like that sometimes. Um, but to just literally just be like, okay. You know, and it was hard to find a sense of humor about it at first. Like, it was not funny yeah. right away. Yeah. Um, but it became lighter and lighter and and I as I grounded and and got more tools back and and uh -huh. got my sense of self back and my consciousness back and uh, reintegrating. It's almost like you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong that you found the practice of offering this as a service to clients partly as a way of keeping it from getting in the way of your music. Hmm. Cuz otherwise it might have derailed your music career. Interesting. I think it was less about – well, because at the time, the music career was very up in the air. I mean, I had a full-time day job mm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I was – and I was very open with them when they hired me. I was like, I'm a musician. I right. might leave at any time. <laughs> they were like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, they were very cool about it. But uh, and very it before, supportive. lady. I know. Yeah. They are like, eh, just answer the phone. Um, but so – but, you know, you got to pay your bills. You know, you can yes. – you can, you are a cosmic light beam who needs to pay their bills. Yes. That's what's happening. Yes. That's currently what's happening to everyone. Uh -huh. And um, and I think offering readings was less about finding a new career path right away. It was more of a way mm. for me to just get back in touch with myself. Like I, I didn't know where I ended and the world began and, mm -hmm. and where mm -hmm. my consciousness ended and other people's began. I mean imagine walking down the street and every – thought that people are thinking you just are they're just screaming it in your face right for months but so it's how too much <laughs> oh yes it's too much but so how then because you have also said that singing is part of yeah. what keeps you in tune with yourself yeah so is it that and i'm not trying to be provocative i'm just yeah, curious yeah. is it that mediumship replaced that yeah, that's a good question. Um, like the that the that frequency was replaced by mediumship, mm. or is it that they live alongside each other? Yeah, that. Because can I yeah. tell you what I was expecting yeah. you to say? Sure. <laughs> what I was and I'm <laughs> provoke away. I'm thrilled that you didn't. What I was expecting you to say, I think, is that 
mediumship gave you emotional language for where your songs come from, if that mm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. That this awareness of being able to connect with the unseen yeah. was a way of realizing like, oh, there's this cosmic trunk that all my songs have always lived in. And now I have have the key. Yeah. And I can just, and now I can go there more reliably. That's so interesting. That's what I was expecting you to say. I love that that's not what you said. Yeah. So I told you we were going to get back to this. Part of the reason I'm I'm curious about this is in Look At Me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have this lyric where you say, I'll heal seven generations at the same time. Yeah. And I... <clears throat> foolishly and uh, narcissistically believed that in hearing that lyric, I was understanding you simultaneously as a medium and a songwriter. Yeah. But the way you've explained it, I am, I am, I have the strong sense that I'm wrong about that. Huh. No, I think you're right on about that, actually. I don't okay. think that's narcissistic at all. I okay. think that's a very okay. good listening. Thank you for that. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I feel very seen and heard. And, you know, the cosmic trunk is accurate. There, There mm. is a certain element to that that is very true where I suddenly had the word clairaudience yes. for something that I had been experiencing since childhood uh-huh. of just hearing songs and getting them out there. And people would go, don't you know how to read music? Don't you know how to play a chord? And I'm like, no, who cares? You don't need it. Don't you just hear songs in your head? Mm-hmm. And they're like, nope. <laughs> you know, like not everyone experiences that. I didn't know you know um so yeah i had a language to to determine kind of where it was coming from but in terms of having a more ready access to it there's no key to infinity Mm. right so it was almost like too much Mm -hmm. so in this kind of similar way of going like the first step was just it, it felt like being in a detox state it was the midnight disease that was my midnight <laughs> disease of like could not have planned this. Could not have planned it. And interestingly enough, and I don't know if this is maybe TMI, but I feel safe sharing this is when I stopped drinking, I had a very physical detox experience of like sweating it out, and it, uh-huh. I I should have gone to a hospital. It was bad. Um, uh-huh. I did not. Uh-huh. Um, and I had an experience of seeing spiders on the walls. Like I had a hallucination. Wow. It was really scary. Wow. Um, but when I had my first mediumship experience and that month of being just completely beside myself and like unable to kind of calibrate, I had hallucinations of spiders on the walls. The spiders came back. They came back. And as I found out, for me, spider is a really powerful symbol of female power, Mm. of connectivity and home building. It's not a scary symbol at all for me. It's very nurturing. You know, this is a web that is built by a friend. This is something Mm -hmm. that like has this invisible but incredibly strong strands of connection. You know, if you think about spider silk, right? So it's like how that became a symbol for me as an artist now of you don't know, you just don't know. What is the seed that you're going to drop that somebody else, what is the lyric that I write out of spite in 2017 Mm -hmm. because of some douchebag? inspiring now you are creating this podcast and here I am sitting and we're talking about it, right? Right. We just don't know. And what's the thing that you're going to do today that's going to cause that spider web effect, right? And so to have, I don't feel like I have the keys to infinity, but I feel like I have um, more responsibility as a human meat bag to- (laughs) A primate wearing clothes. A primate wearing clothes to do my due diligence and express it. And get it out, yeah. right? Because I still don't know where it comes from. I can't tell you where the trunk is. Right. But I can tell you how fun it is 
when I get to access it. And it's so easy, so easy. I deal with this every day. That's part of why I'm so diligent about this journaling practice in the morning because every day I wake up forgetting that I'm an infinite being. Thank you for inspiring me to think about how I will spend my time. (laughs) You can thank what's-his-name for that. (laughs) And cut. And cut. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. Jocelyn McKenzie has a new EP called Wake coming out on April 10th. Check the show notes for this episode for links to listen to all of her music and to watch her music videos. This is a brand new show. Thank you for listening to it so much. And if you like what you heard, the best way to support us would be to leave a review in Apple Podcasts. And you can also email me. I would love to hear from you. The email address is midnight at W-A-L-T dot F-M. We will be back with another great conversation next week. And thank you again for letting your madness ride with mine. Until then, in the words of Steely Dan, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. <laughs>